I met Jody Orgill Brown on a dance floor in Las Vegas. The dance floor is where my kind of people tend to be. The people that when a good song comes on don't give a shit what other people think of them, not of their crazy dance moves, their sweaty faces, or the fact that they sing every single note totally off key. Jody and I are so alike and yet so different, and in the way that people who become fast friends usually are. And in the time since this fast friendship began, I've learned so much from her, and the lessons I've learned are ones that I knew I needed to share with you. Welcome to episode 66 of This Shit Works. I'm your host, Julie Brown, and today I am joined by my friend, Jody Orgill Brown. This episode is sponsored by Nickerson, a full-service branding, marketing, and PR and communications agency with team members in Boston, Los Angeles, Miami, and New York City. Visit them at nickersoncos.com. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. Last week, when I told you a little bit about my Meniere's disease diagnosis, what I didn't mention was that prior to my diagnosis, I was informed by the ear specialist that there are only two reasons why a person will lose their hearing overnight. One is a viral infection in the ear. The other would be due to a brain tumor. In the next breath, I was told that I was going to be put on an oral steroid treatment in case it was an infection. If it was an infection, I was told that I might be able to regain about 50% of my hearing. In the next breath, the doctor told me she would be immediately scheduling me for a cranial MRI with contrast, meaning that during the MRI, dye would be injected intravenously into my bloodstream. This dye would allow the doctors to see if I had a brain tumor. My friend Jody and I underwent the same exact MRI with contrast procedure, but my diagnosis was completely different than hers. Where my doctor called me the next day to say that everything in my MRI had come back normal, Jody received the news that no one wants to hear. There's a spot on your scan. Jody's brain tumor was located between her right auditory canal and her brainstem. In May of 2009, Jody underwent surgery where 80% of the tumor was removed. But due to the proximity to her brainstem, the operation was not without complications. Jody's nerves were damaged, leading to facial paralysis, hearing loss, and pneumocephalus, which is the presence of air in the cranial cavity. She also had a cerebral spinal fluid leak a condition in where cerebrospinal fluid escapes through a small hole in the area surrounding the brain and the spinal cord. It's been 12 years since Jody was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and she says through it all, coming to terms with facial paralysis has been one of the most difficult things about being a survivor. She has had nine surgeries on her eye to enable her to close her eyelid and protect her vision. Additionally, Jody has had to relearn how to chew and swallow as well as undergo balance and facial therapy. Her paralysis means she can't smile or use facial expressions to communicate as most people do. Jody has taken all of her experiences and put them on the page and then taken them to the stage. She's written three books about surviving, self-acceptance, overcoming depression, and anti-fragility. 
She's also a sought-after speaker, sharing how her experiences have strengthened her resolve to help others improve their interactions. And today, because of a sick beat and a dance floor, she is here to share her insights with us. Jody, my friend, it's so good to see you again. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And I love that intro. We met in such a fun and beautiful way. <laughs> the one thing that is fantastic about meeting other speakers is how Google-able we are. So I Googled you and one of the first videos I watched that you had done was a short video on YouTube titled, You Are Beautiful, which describes how your facial paralysis made you feel as if you had lost your identity and how people would do double takes or stare or whisper when they saw you. You said you felt as if people wouldn't be able to see past your physical compromise. Do you still feel that way 12 years later? I feel like there are some people who still get stuck in what they see, but I have tried very hard to not let that bother me and instead use what could be a weakness and turn it into a superpower. I realize I'm going to be memorable. I realize they're going to look at me and they're going to notice that something is just a little bit different. And rather than trying to shy away or hide or turn my face, instead, I use it as an opportunity to lock eyes. I look at them and then I try to do something that will stay in their minds in a positive way. And so I really do try to use every moment and every interaction to make a difference in someone's life. I know I'm going to be memorable. Let's go ahead and use it for a positive thing instead of a negative thing. So whether it's that I try to have a moment and smile my best smile at them so they can try to see the spirit that I have inside coming out, whether I start a conversation with them, whether I give them a compliment on something that I noticed about them, I just really try to use it as a positive, memorable moment so that number one, it's positive for them, but that also makes it positive for me. So that rather than facing that feeling of self-doubt every time someone looks at me, instead, I can have the opposite feeling and I can actually feel good about the interactions I have with people. But that must have taken some time for you to get to that point. Oh, absolutely. It <laughs> took a lot of time. And we were talking today about grief and grieving. And one of the things I definitely had to go through was the grieving process. Mm. I actually had a therapist who told me, you have to grieve what you have lost including your physical appearance that has changed. Because if you don't grieve with it, you've lost and you can't appreciate what you still have. And I am so much better today than I was years ago, but it's still been through a process of grieving. There are so many things I, I can't do anymore. And there are things that I have had to make changes and I've had to really learn to adjust. And I've also had to learn to let go. I've always believed and told others that who we are really is who we are on the inside. And it's not what we portray to the outside world. And boy, oh boy, if this was not a test to see if that's how I really felt about myself, because even though I was far from a supermodel, I was very comfortable with who I was. I knew that the world knew me for who I was and I was good with that. And so to have that all change and suddenly parts of it taken away really did push me and challenge me to see if I believed what I said that I did. Mm -hmm. And it took a while. It did. I think the grieving process was the thing that was the hardest and going through the grieving process and learning that it was okay to feel sad about it. Sometimes it was okay to cry. It was okay to see pictures of myself and be frustrated and to look into the mirror and think, oh my gosh, that doesn't even look like me. 
now that I have gone through that process, there are still times where it hits me again and I'll see a picture and I'll remember, oh yeah, that's what I look like. That's what people see. Because in my mind, I have a picture of myself and this is not what she looks like. Right. Um, but I am happy to say that through the years, through the time, through the process of writing books, through the process of helping others, and through the grace of God, I am 100% good with who I am, with what I look like, and with the face I present to the world. You know, when we met, clearly you noticed your facial paralysis. I have women in my family who have Bell's palsy. Mm-hmm. So I have two women in my family who have an amount of paralysis on their face. And I remember saying to myself, oh, she must have had Bell's palsy. And then when I Googled you, I was like, oh, I was totally wrong. Do you prefer that people ask about your story or are curious about it? What is the right interaction for people when they meet you? What do you prefer? That's a great question. And I can only speak for myself on this because everyone feels differently. And I have many friends in the facial paralysis community who hate to be asked because they feel like that is just drawing attention. And that's the only thing that people see. I feel completely the opposite about it. I feel like when someone asks me, that gives me the opportunity to have that interaction with them, find that positive moment, also to show them that I'm not any different than they are, but it also gives me the chance to explain what is going on so that next time they see someone and recognize that something is different, it can be a non-issue. I wanna take the elephant out of the room. And just the other day I was at church and a little guy who's probably about four years old was walking with his mom, who is a friend of mine, And he looked at me and he turned to his mom and he said, why is she only talking out of half of her face? (laughs) And I loved it. I loved it. I love when kids are just honest and they speak their mind. And my reaction was I got down on my knees so that we were eye to eye. And I just explained that just like sometimes you get a cut and you have to put a bandaid on it or you have an owie. I said, I had something that hurt my brain. And when it hurt my brain, what it did was it made it so that this side of my face doesn't work very well. So now I have to talk out of this side of my face and I have to chew on this side of my face. And I have to do all of the things that you would usually use both sides of your face and your mouth for. And I have to do them all on one side. And he just kind of looked at it and said, oh, and then that was it. And he moved on. And the answer And the experience can be 30 seconds long, Mm -hmm. but I really find that that for me is the best way to handle it, that I make it into a positive thing. I explain to kids, you know, we're not any different. You might have your arm in a cast one day and that's about the same. If your arm doesn't work, it's the same as, you know, this part of my face doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And with adults, adults usually aren't quite as willing to ask. They have probably through experience been shushed and told not to enough times, but I, I don't hesitate. I don't hesitate to share, nor do I hesitate to ask. And if it turns out that someone doesn't want to talk about it, I absolutely respect that. But for me, I think it shows that they want to see past what Mm -hmm. they are seeing, but they need to understand. And if I can help be a part of that understanding, then that's a wonderful blessing to me and to them. When did you decide, we met in a National Speakers Association conference, you are a national speaker, you talk about your experience. When did you decide that it was something that you would talk about publicly, that you would make it into a message? 
You know, I think I went through the process of deciding that twice. Once was when I was actually still in the hospital for the first set of surgeries. I was in neurocritical care, in and out of neurocritical care for 35 days because of all of the complications that I had. And there came a point in time about four and a half weeks into the hospital stay where I realized I was going to live Mm -hmm. because up until that point in time, my life had been so touch and go with all of the complications, with trying to remove the tumor, with the spinal fluid leak, with the pneumocephalus. We didn't know from day to day if I was even going to make it. And there came a point where I realized I am going to live. Mm. And I had this very strong thought and impression, which I believe came from God that indicated to me that because I was going to live and that I was going to have this chance, I needed to be able to share my story and messages with people. Mm -hmm. I did not know what that meant at the time. I didn't realize it was going to mean books. It was going to mean speaking. It was going to mean videos. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew I was going to live And I wanted and needed to do my best to get some positive messages out there to the world. So in that sense, I made a decision right then on the spot that I would use my second chance at life for doing the best things I possibly could for sharing some good in the world, for reminding people that God exists. And I made that commitment to myself and and to God at that time. And then as I got home and realized what my new life was like, and that I was going to have severe challenges and some pretty major deficits, it took a while to start having things come together. And so really, I didn't intentionally go out and start saying, I'm going to speak about this. But really what happened is people started asking me to share bits of my story. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to work, they asked me to uh, talk to the staff and address it at a general staff meeting. Well, there were 400 people on that staff meeting. And it was the first time I had the chance to stand up and tell my side of the story and explain Mm -hmm. what happened. And I was completely overwhelmed by the response that people had, that when I was struggling still with the changes to my body and to my face and just to my overall person, the response was overwhelmingly positive and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And people jumped to their feet and applause and came up and hugged me and congratulated me and then said, oh my gosh, you have to write this down. You have to write Mm -hmm. your story. You have to keep sharing your message. And that was the start of it. And from then it just became, I just said yes, when people would ask. It didn't start as, I'm going to go out and become a professional speaker. It was just that anytime someone said, would you? I said, yeah, I will. And that started a whole new thing. And so then years later, as I had been sharing and sharing and sharing, then I thought, hmm, maybe I really should do this. Maybe I should use this as a platform. And so that was when I made the decision for the second time. And then I really got active about it. And I I joined speaking organizations like the National Speakers Association, Mm -hmm. and I started becoming more um, focused on it. And so really, I kind of made the decision twice. But after that second time, I certainly have not looked back. I've listened to a couple of your keynotes because you have videos online. And one of the stories that I love in your keynote is about a chair and a bat. Chair, (laughs) a Sharpie and a bat. And I love this story because I think there are times in our life 
where we, for whatever reason, are dealing with something very difficult and we're not exactly sure what to do with all of the feelings that we have inside of us. And somehow we have to get those out. And you tell this story about a friend who brought over a chair and a Sharpie and a bat to your house when you first came home. Can you tell that story? Because I think it's great. Well, my friend Stacy is one who has had her fair share of hardships in life. And just a few years prior, she had lost her husband who took his life by suicide. So she was one who I knew I could trust with heartfelt and deep feelings, with feelings of loss, with feelings of struggle, with feelings of how do I go on through this mess. And so when she showed up at my door, I answered the door and Stacy literally pushed her way in and came in with this bat and chair and set of Sharpies. And she just looked at me and said, it is time. It is time to take the control back of your life because so many things had been out of my control. And there were so many things I could do absolutely nothing about. Um, and I just had to figure out how to deal with it. And she said, all of these things have happened, but there are still some things you can control and it's time to take that back. So she set up the chair, gave me the Sharpies. She drew a big target on the chair. And then we together took the different color markers and wrote all of the frustrations that I was facing from my new life. At the time I was wearing pirate patches because I couldn't close my eye and I hadn't had my surgeries. So it included things like pirate patches, dry eyes, drooping mouth, drippy lips, not being able to swallow. And we just listed everything. And when I thought I got to the end of the list, <laughs> Stacy is like, girl, I know that's not all. Come on, what else is going on? Let's get it all out. And we went through all of these different things that I was feeling and all of the frustrations I was having. And we covered the chair in all of the different frustrations. We wrote them all down. And then we went outside and she handed me the bat and said, swing, swing the bat. And I swung the bat. And the moment that the bat hit the chair, was a little bit electrifying. Like this zing came through my body and I just realized it felt so good. And she stood there and cheered me on and took pictures as I took the bat and did my best to beat up this chair. Now, the funny thing is at the time, my body was so depleted. I was probably 90, 95 pounds. So using all of my strength to beat up the chair did not look anything like it would have for, you know, a baseball player. But, but that was the whole point was I could still take control and I could still be the one in charge of my life. And by getting that out and letting go of those frustrations, it really gave me the opportunity to say, okay, I am still in charge. I can't control these things, but I can still be in charge of me and I can still decide how I'm going to handle it. The thoughts that I am going to think and the way that I am going to live my life. And these other things may be part of my life, but they are not going to control my life. And that was a big decision. And I am forever grateful that Stacy pushed her way in and mm -hmm. gave me that experience. I'll have to show you the pictures. They're pretty yes. great. <laughs> Please share them with me. 
this conversation about this chair, I think, and taking control and understanding your strength, even when you feel like you're at your weakest point, is going to lead me into the conversation about anti-fragility. And I hadn't heard that term before I met you. And it's a term that is almost 10 years old. It was coined in 2012 by Nassim Tlaib. And it is one of the main topics that you talk about in your speeches. For people like me who don't know what that is, what is anti-fragility? That is a great question because we all know what being fragile is. Being fragile means there's one state and that's that delicate and frail and not going to get any stronger. The only real option is to get weaker or broken because something is fragile. But the way that Nassim Tlaib explained it, anti-fragility is a property of systems that actually increase in their capability to thrive because of stressors, volatility, and attacks. In other words, you get better from the things that challenge you. So resilient means you bounce back. Robust means maybe you were strong enough that something didn't impact you. But anti-fragility means when you are anti-fragile, you actually get better through the experiences that would otherwise try to weaken or destroy you. And I heard that and it just felt like, he is talking to me. And he wasn't, he was talking about big systems. He was talking about software programs and economies and governments and how these large scale systems could find a way to uh, get better even when hit upon by challenges. But to me, it sounded like such a personal invitation to use the opportunities that had come my way um, and to see them as opportunities for growth rather than as things that I had been hit with or been victimized by, but instead to become better from the challenges that I faced. And then it became somewhat of an obsession to figure out how can I take this experience and become better from it? How can I become stronger from it? And I just kind of developed a whole series of things that I could use personally in my life. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I can share these things and others can benefit from personalizing the concept of being anti-fragile. So that is how it all started. Talk about a fragility mindset and how to get out of a fragile mindset. My first question is, how do you know that you're in a fragile mindset? How can someone determine, okay, I'm in this mindset right now, and then we can move toward getting out of it because maybe people don't know that they're- That's a great question. And I don't know that I've ever thought about it exactly in that way, but I think if you stop to look at what's going on in your life, if you have anxiety about everything that's going on, if you were constantly worried, if you were thinking more about how you are feeling and your frustrations in your life, if you were focused on those things all of the time, if you're focused on- just trying to preserve things as they are and try to avoid all of the negativity or anything bad happening, then you're in a fragility mindset because that is saying, oh, if anything happens, I'm going to be worse. Yeah. But the opposite is true. We all know anyone who is a parent or a teacher or who has worked with kids knows that growth does not come when they are standing still. 
but yet we all still try to keep them from falling, even though falling is exactly the thing that's going to help them become better and stronger. Because every time that they fall, they learn a little bit better balance. They learn a little bit more about how to compensate. They learn how to work their bodies. And just like that, our minds do the same thing. So it is the way that our brain more naturally works. And when we find ourselves trying to prevent those things in our lives, when we are constantly on edge, we're worried about everything, we don't want anything bad to happen, that's usually a mindset of being fragile, feeling like if anything happens, I'm going to lose it and I'm going to break. And that is often brought on by stressors in our lives, whether it's from our work, whether it's from our families, whether it's from financial situations, pandemics, stores closing, businesses being affected, losing a loved one, an illness. When you are in this state of feeling like if anything else happens, I'm going to lose it. I can't take one more thing. As opposed to knowing that things are going to happen and then finding ways to use those things that happen to become stronger and better. So you just talked about growth a lot. And I know that's an acronym that you use for one of your models. So what is your growth model? Well, the reason I use growth as the model is number one, it's something I'm somewhat obsessed with. You know, you can have a fixed mindset or you can have a growth mindset, meaning that you recognize that your brain can change, that you have neuroplasticity, that you can continue to learn and grow. That's what I want is I want to ever grow. I want to constantly be changing and to be getting better. And so the concept of growth that I've come up with anti-fragility stands for G is grit, which is Angela Duckworth's study on grit, which means you have to have a couple things to have grit. To have a gritty attitude, you need to have passion for something and you need to have perseverance. I would also add to that that you need to have hope. I love Viktor Frankl's work, and I think that he is right on. You have to have hope that things are going to get better in order to have the passion and the perseverance to work toward them. So I add hope to grit. And then also you have to believe that the things that you do are going to make a difference. You have to believe that your inputs are going to impact your outcomes. Because if you think that things are just going to happen to you and that you're not going to be able to influence outcomes, then you're not going to have the passion nor the perseverance to keep going. So to me, that is G, that is grit. R in growth is your response. And you really need to be able to adapt and respond quickly. And that is one of the things that I now understand is that when you react to something quickly and when you adapt quickly, then you are not as impacted by things that happen because you're on top of it. You're changing, you're making changes, you're adapting, you're pivoting. We all know that people who just sat back and said, oh, I'm gonna wait out this pandemic, the shutdown happened. If they just sat back and waited, they were left behind. They lost business, they lost livelihoods and the people who moved quickly decided they were going to try some new things and adapt fast. They were the ones who really were able to thrive. So the, the faster that you change and adapt, the better off you are. Yeah. Oh, it's probably my favorite because it is the story of my life, which is to find ways to outwork your weaknesses. Years ago, you remember this, I'm sure they used to have the SWOT analysis where they would say, oh, you got to look at what your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are. 
And lots of studies concluded that you are better off focusing on your strengths rather than your weaknesses, because you cannot always turn your weaknesses into competencies or strengths. Mm -hmm. And you can't always make them disappear. And I have certainly learned I cannot change certain things in my life. And so if I can get people to see past the weakness and not question it because they understand it or because it's camouflaged, I consider that outworking your weaknesses. So that's like my daily challenge in life is how to take the little deficits that I still have and find ways to outwork them. So I love it. That's my favorite. The W in growth stands for way in. And when I say way in, I mean checking in with the people around you. Years ago, I worked in an office where we had a wellness challenge and our office decided to take the challenge as a group rather than just individuals. We would go down on Monday mornings for staff meeting. We'd go down to the lower level of the hospital where I worked and we would get on a giant freight scale and we would do a way in together. <laughs> so we weren't saying, here's how much you weigh and here's how much you weigh and here's how much you weigh. This was what we weighed as a group. Mm -hmm. And then we had a group goal and we were all working toward the same goal and we were still all accountable, but it didn't put too yeah. much pressure or added stress on any one person because no one person was highlighted for where they were. Instead, it was something that we were working on together. And I think too often we look at each other and we think, well, geez, Julie's a totally capable person. You know, she can handle this and this and this. But we don't stop to think about what the weight is that they might be carrying at any given time. Mm -hmm. We don't know when someone is dealing with the death of a loved one, an illness, a child who is having struggles, or when the family is facing financial issues. And all of those things weigh people down yep. and impact them. So the more often you can do a group weigh in and say, what can I do to help spread out the weight that this group is carrying? How can I help make things better for you? Because by helping make things better for you, it makes it better for all of us. You're still working toward the goals together. You're still accountable, but no one person is going to be responsible or going to feel the stress of having all of the weight on their shoulders. Yeah, that's great. And T stands for tinker and experiment because <laughs> part of adapting and changing means you have to try new things and you don't always know what's going to work. But yeah. when you take small risks and you try something new and you're willing to experiment, sometimes things are not going to work and you can eliminate that, but sometimes things are going to work and you're going to find something you can implement into your life or your business. Uh, I have some friends that own a restaurant. And of course, we all know what happened to restaurants during the pandemic. Yeah. The dining, indoor dining was shut down and they thought, what the heck are we going to do? And so they tinkered. They came up with some different ideas. And so at a time where they otherwise would have been absolutely struggling, they said they had a great year yep. and they found all sorts of new customers because they were willing to experiment and try something new and then implement what worked for them. Yeah. So T is tinker and experiment. And then finally, H, the H in growth stands for hood. And by hood, I mean neighborhood, parenthood, the people that you go through life with. Who is your hood? Who are the people that are surrounding you in your journey? 
because we all know studies have shown, research has proven that the more support you have, the greater your social network, the longer you live, the happier you are, the easier you can handle challenges because you are supported. I can't tell you how many times living for myself looked too overwhelming Mm. because the challenges facing me were so difficult. And I got to a point where I literally was fighting for others. I was fighting because I knew they were praying for me. I was fighting because they wanted so desperately for me to get better because they were taking care of my kids because they were helping me and they were sending me notes and flowers and cards. They were trying so hard to help me get better that I was at one time fighting for my life for them. And that was a really powerful experience for me to realize that when you have those people who are surrounding you, who want the best for you, who are fighting for your life, it also helps you fight too. Right. And I love that. I love picturing in my mind, the people around me all linking arms and going through life arm in arm together. That is how we become stronger. So that acronym growth is how I look at anti-fragility. Those are the ways in which if we do those little things each and every day, we can find ourselves becoming better, getting stronger and experiencing ever growth, no matter what it is that we are facing in our lives. I think you say in one of your keynotes that you couldn't have done this alone. What you went through, you couldn't have done it alone. And there are so many times in our lives where we feel like we have to go it alone, that this is our struggle, that this is our battle alone. And that is the downfall to not realize how many people, number one, care about you, want to see you succeed, want to see you be healthy, want to see you overcome what you're doing. But when when we are faced with deep challenges, we feel like we have to take them on alone. And why is that? Why is it that we feel that way? Because we were born to be social creatures. We are meant to be in tribes, in families, in communities. That was how it has been from the beginning of time. And yet when something hard comes for whatever reason, we tend to go into ourselves and feel like we have to get through it by ourselves. Mm -hmm. I remember when I had young children and I was a young mom with little kids home alone. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. And it wasn't until another mom in my neighborhood invited me to go and participate in a play group and get out with other moms and other kids that I realized I was not the only one who was home alone feeling exactly this way. And that when we give up that idea of it's just us against the world and instead we join in together it was so much easier. It was so much better. It was so much more fun. The kids had people to play with. I had adults to talk to and we supported each other. And then we checked in with each other. We became each other's hoods. We did the weigh-ins. We checked on each other when someone was having a hard time, when someone had a sick kid, we brought over those pans of cheesy potatoes or lasagna when someone needed it. And it just made life so much better. And I know that because I know that I did not save myself alone, no matter what I did, no matter what I could have done, no matter what I could have tried, it would not have been enough to preserve my life. Mm 
-hmm. What preserved my life was the combination of the people around me who did all of these things that I'm talking about. When an option didn't turn out the way that they wanted, they experimented. My doctors were the epitome of anti-fragility because nothing in my case went the way that we expected. Mm -hmm. But instead of giving up, they dug in and they looked and tried new things. We did experimental procedures and they went home and researched and came up with ideas for how they might be able to help me. And it was the people. It was the people in my life. It was the things they did, the choices they decided to make that literally kept me alive. And I say, it changed the world. And some people would say, change the world, come on. <laughs> well, if you don't believe me, you know, ask my kids. Right. Ask my kids if the things that people did for our family changed the world. Right. It certainly changed the world for them for and them. for us. Exactly. Exactly. This was such a great interview. I'm so excited that we met. I'm in Boston. You're in Utah. We met in Vegas, but this is what, this <laughs> you know, this is what this is about. And this is also what this is about is meeting people and then taking the next step to say, I want to know more about you and setting up times to talk and check in. Cause that's exactly what we did. I texted you the, the morning after we met, I texted you and then you emailed me and then we set up a Zoom and that was when we figured out we had a similar experience where my experience ended much differently than yours, but we had also gone through that critical moment of, oh my God, I might be sick. But you know what? We could have been on that dance floor and had a fun time together that night and that could have been the end of the story. Mm -hmm. So I love <laughs> that you were willing and that I was willing to come together and see what might become of this. And I think we both know we were absolutely meant to be fast friends. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Don't and yet we could have missed it. Yeah. So, so many I, people miss it. So, so many, many people, people miss, miss it. it. Because they don't, they think that maybe that other person, oh, I met that person. I don't know if that person wants to get to know me. Yeah, they do. They, they do. do. Don't miss the moment. Don't. They don't. do. Yeah. Every interaction is an opportunity to change a life. And in this case, it changed my life. It changed your lives. And then it's going to change also the lives of the people who get to hear from us, who get to know us through each other. It's going to bless many, many lives because we took the opportunity. So I love that. I love the way that we met and I will never forget it. And I will never forget you letting loose and showing your moves on the dance floor it was one of the most fun nights of my whole life. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Jody, I'm going to put links to everything you have, your videos, your website, your books in the show notes so everybody can learn more about you. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. I adore you, my friend, and I am grateful that we are friends. Me too. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. If you are not inspired by Jody and her story, I'm not sure there's anything I could say in the wrap up that would drive it home for you. But in conclusion, I do just want to repeat a few of the things that Jody talked about and that struck a chord with me. The first being that anti-fragility is when we have the capability to thrive because of stressors and volatility that we experience. This always makes me think about scar tissue, how the skin that forms over where we have been hurt ends up being the strongest skin on our bodies. It's tougher because of how it healed after trauma. You can do hard things, you can overcome loss, you can win after defeat, and you can let light in through the cracks. Now, 
I enjoyed all of the directives that make up her growth acronym, but for me, the most important one was HOOD. I mean, that is what we discuss here, right? We discuss the people around you. So have you spent enough time creating a HOOD around you, a group of people to help you not only during the good times, but with the heavy lift as well? And are you there in that capacity for people in your hood? Are you a Stacy? Are you the friend who comes over with a chair, a Sharpie, and a bat? She didn't come over and say to Jody, what can I do for you? She came over and said, I know you need this. So don't wait for someone who's going through something to tell you what they need. Most people don't even know what they need in times of crisis or suffering or loss. Think, what would I need if I was in this person's shoes? And then do it for them. Be someone Stacy. As I mentioned, one of Jody's videos on YouTube is titled, You Are Beautiful. And because of that, I have picked a super simple drink this week just called Beautiful. And you only need two ingredients. One ounce of cognac and one ounce of Grand Marnier. You simply pour each of these two ingredients into a brandy snifter and you swirl and sip. That is it. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jody. I'm putting links to all of her information in the show notes and I urge you to learn more about her and reach out to her yourself. She's one amazing person. If you still haven't had a chance to review the podcast on iTunes, please do take a moment to do so. It really does make a difference. And until next week, cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.